Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program right here on WERU Community Radio. Well, the weather is changing. We're anxious to be out in our gardens and romp in the woods, to be outside everywhere. And that means, of course, we need to be tick savvy because, alas, ticks are out there too. So, Who better to turn to to educate us about ticks and tick-related disease than pediatrician, internist, and our resident tick expert, Dr. Beatrice Santier. For more than two decades, Dr. Santier has lectured on Lyme disease and related tick-borne disorders throughout Maine and nationally. That's to both professional and community groups. She's an active member of the Vector-Borne Disease Workgroup for the Maine CDC and also a member of the International Lyme and Associated Disease Society. Dr. Santier also had served on the 2022 Federal Tick-Borne Disease Working Group Access to Care and Education Subcommittee. Welcome back to Healthy Options, Dr. B. Santier. It's so good to speak with you again for our timely review and update about all things tick related. Okay. Thanks so much, Rhonda. (laughs) So we are here. It is um, a new year, and it's uh, been, for those in in Maine, it's been a very wet and rainy spring so far. Good. That's uh, great for the uh, brown tail moth fungus, uh, making uh, the brown tail moth less of an issue. But for ticks, this is sort of like... not so good. It's kind of a great... It's like, whoopee! Yeah, ticks like it moist. (laughs) And and we didn't have, you know, a killing frost particularly. We had a mild winter, good snow cover. They were insulated and very happy. So what so, are we seeing? What are we seeing now? Well, uh, the ticks that are active right now are probably adult female um, black-legged ticks, deer ticks, uh, who wintered over and are now questing for their blood meals. Um, In addition to those guys, um, we are probably starting to see uh, dog ticks coming into their season of activity. Uh, The difference, of course, well, there are many differences, but the visual difference uh, is in part size. So the adult deer tick is small, maybe sesame seed size. The adult uh, dog tick is bigger than that, almost raisin size. And what you can also notice are the markings are different. The adult deer tick is either uniformly dark or two-toned, sort of a dark um, portion close to what we call the head of the tick, the the mouth parts of the tick, and a reddish um, abdomen. So it's uh, two-toned or uniformly dark. And The dog tick is a brownish color, so that's dark, but has what I call kind of racing stripes on its back. So a lacy white pattern on the back of the tick. And even once they are fully engorged, having fed, you can see these lacy markings on their back. So you can identify um, or, or nearly identify the difference between those two ticks. Um, the university is now testing dog ticks for three infectors, uh, looking at the bacteria that causes Rocky Mountain spotted fever, looking at uh, 
tularemia and ehrlichia. So, um, so you can send your tick regardless of which one you have. I think where they are ready to identify the pathogens. Oh, and the other cool thing is they are now also in uh, deer ticks, black-legged ticks, identifying um, an, an infection that we had talked about, but Borrelia myomotoi, or hard tick relapsing fever disease. And um, they've been doing that work for a year now. And I know that they are looking into identifying Powassan virus. So coming soon to the tick lab near you will be a, quite a quite an array of pathogen identification. Now we're talking about the University of Maine here in the state yes, of Maine. Yes, univer- exactly. Right. And if you are listening elsewhere, uh, there there are other. I, could you send? Can you send something to the Maine? I wonder. Wayne University Actually, of Maine. Even in? It appears that you can. Um, I was reading through their tick report, and I have not um, spoken with uh, uh, Griffin Dill, who is the head of that lab. But they had at least, I I think, like 17 ticks that were submitted from elsewhere, so outside of Maine. So I I don't know that they are seeking that, but (laughs) apparently... been done. Yeah. Well, we'll follow up on that. But also, if you are in a different state, um, you can look into where you can send your ticks. And why is that a good thing to do? Uh, it, you know, first, if if uh, the lab will identify the tick, which the university will do without cost to an individual, they will identify the tick, its stage of engorgement and all of that. Um, t- uh, the pathogen identification, I think the use of having this collected body of information is it may be able to guide us in decision-making about controlling these ticks going forward. A lot of folks think that identifying the tick and finding out what's in it will direct their medical care. Not really, because, I mean, it may contribute, but most of the time you can't get the information back in a timely enough way to help us decide whether to treat preventively a tick bite. Um, And once you're sick, what if your tick tests negative? If you have a clinical picture of Lyme disease, you should be treated. Maybe it was a different tick. If the tick is positive and you're well, maybe it didn't transmit it. So so it's a it's a nuanced bit of information in terms of medical treatment, but in terms of establishing um, a geographic distribution picture and and guiding us in terms of um, maybe vector control activities, it's a good thing. So I think that this is going to be. Um... Some t- somewhat disappointing for some people to, because of the sense of, uh, it's, isn't it possible that you have been infected, but you're, you're just not showing symptoms? So, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I was taught early in my education, you don't throw any information away. So to know what was in the tick that we identified that bit you, it could be information that we use down the road. Well, when we're considering, well, what could be wrong when, you know, three months away 
you develop some neurologic illness or something new that we don't have a better explanation for. I, I always tell folks, if you find a tick on you, write it on the calendar and don't forget that it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, not on you, attached In you, to attached you. to you. Yeah, <laughs> attached to you. On you, it has some value. I mean, it means that you had the possibility of a tick attachment. And I, I use that also as um, part of the important information that people share, you know, whenever someone comes in, because not everyone who gets Lyme disease, for example, gets a rash. You know, we know that in the stringest look, at least 30% of people get no rash. And so it can be a real challenge to identify um, the clinical illness in those people. So that we need all the data points we can get. And Mm -hmm. I think we should try not to let any single data point determine people's treatment. Right. You have to put the whole story together right. and um, and make hopefully make good decisions together for everybody's good health. So let's um, let's start at the beginning. Once upon a time, it was a beautiful spring day and you went for a hike or you went into your backyard or or you had someone over yeah. for dinner and they uh, brought yeah. some ticks with them, which I actually has happened in our yeah. very own home <laughs> more than once, <laughs> literally. Um, d- tell us about what, th- what ticks, so we know they like the moisture. What, what else do they like and how do they, how, how do yeah, we, so how do we deal with all this? Yeah. Where, where do you find them? Um, you know, uh, dog ticks will tend to be part of your lawn environment. And uh, so, and they're going to be more the middle of the trail kind of ticks. Black-legged ticks, and they are our greater concern because we're going to stay pretty focused on Lyme disease and the related or associated um, infections that are transmitted by the black-legged tick today. Um, they like uh, leaf litter, uh, the edge of the woods rather than the deep woods, uh, vegetation that is uh, tall, although they probably only climb up three or so feet, they don't go forever. They're not in the trees. They'll be more likely on the tall grass. If the grass is mown to ankle height, the tick is going to be about ankle height because what they do is they crawl to the top of the vegetation that they're on and begin questing or seeking their blood meal. The good news about um, black-legged ticks is they aren't going to chase you, but they will reach out and attach to your clothing or whatever is on you as you pass through. So where can you be concerned in your own yard? Well, if you've got a brush and leaf litter close to your house, that's not good news for you because ticks travel on mice. Mice get in that area. And if they leave their ticks behind, then that's trouble for you. Um, The university looked at which activities were most likely uh, to result in an observed tick that was submitted. So you've got to keep that in mind. These are ticks that are found. Um, So gardening was like number one this past year, Uh, people who are in their gardens. And that kind of makes sense. It's vegetation. Um. Uh, hiking, uh, 
uh, yard work, oh, was the big number two. So clearing out all that leaf litter and getting your, your yard in order um, contributes to it. So what can you do to not have ticks on you? I guess that's, that's what mm. we're after here. The first is um, dress for what you're doing. And in general, these are dark colored ticks. Maybe wearing light colored clothes when you're doing dark, this yard work or hiking, or um, camping, or uh, woods working, you know, um, uh, tuck your shirt into your pants, your pants into your socks, and create a barrier from the ground up. The ticks will crawl up. They will get onto the clothing and crawl upward. If you spray clothing or treat your clothing with permethrin, which is... um, perilous for ticks and thankfully not for people, um, you can reduce the likelihood of a tick attachment 73 times if all you treat are your shoes and socks. If all you treat is the lower part, the studies suggest that it significantly reduces tick attachments. If you treat your whole clothing, which is what I would recommend for gardeners, because you've got to think about that. When you're gardening, your feet and your legs become your hands and your arms as well, because that's what's down in the area of uh, tick exposure. So I think gardeners need to be particularly careful. Um, There are, you can do your own treatment with permethrin. Once it dries in, it's pretty inert. It will last through several washes, or you can get factory treated um, clothing or clothing items, including socks, gaiters, um, Sleeves. Some companies make like a gardener's sleeve so that you can just put it on over your clothing. So those are basic things. And on the exposed skin that's left, um, EPA registered tick repellents are a good idea. Um, DEET is still the gold standard. More than 60 years of safety and efficacy data. Um, IR3535 used to be an Avon Skin So Soft Bug Guard Expedition formula, but now it's in a, a lot of different um, products. So, it, it, you know, read the label. Uh, DEET needs to be at least 23%. More than 50% is just not more effective. Yeah. Um, there, There is, uh, oh, what's the one? Um, um, oil of lemon eucalyptus. Some folks like that because... You know, you feel like it's less chemical. For me, they're all chemicals, but um, the, the, the deal with that is you probably need to apply it more often. There is a great site, and we'll, I'll give it to you so that we can put it on your, on your webpage, but it's, um, the uh, EPA has a site where you can plug in how long you need protection and what agents you might be interested in, and it kind of brings them all up. There, there's also what is it? Is the uh, pericardin? Uh, per, um, how do we oh, say that? Yeah, picaridin. Picaridin. Yeah. That's it. Picaridin. Yeah, that's that, that's, I, that's a nice one. I actually um, I, uh, personally have found that to be less uh, irritating. Noxious. Noxious. Yeah. It really is. You know, a, a yeah. lot of people find that to be yeah. true. You, that needs to be at twenty percent concentration. So, I, I love that. Um, Companies try to, you know, lessen the concentration, make it more appealing. But 20% is what does ticks. And in some studies, that was shown to be more effective 
than DEET was for people. So the key to using um, anything that you're putting on your skin for protection is wash it off when you're done. The the problems that were identified even with DEET were from prolonged high-dose exposures over an extended period of time without washing it off. So wash it off. And, you know, never on the backs of little kids' hands, maybe not on the backs of your hands either. Because they um, rub your eyes and get in rub your Rub your face. eyes. Yeah. And the other um, the other thing about the uh, Prometheon, um, if you're doing it yourself, I would say is, obviously you don't want to inhale anything, but also right. when it's wet, I, I believe it's toxic to cats. So, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so wanna, if you love your cat, you will not let your cat be exposed to your permethrin treated clothing until it has dried in. I believe after that point, there is no injury to cat. It's a neurotoxin and we have an enzyme that breaks it down. So whatever exposure we get through the skin, which is minimal, um, we can handle it. Um, we should not eat or inhale it, but yeah. the exposure through the skin is, mm. it's okay. Mm. Yeah. For those of you who have just tuned in, I want to let you know that this is WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing ticks and tick-borne illnesses with our tick expert, Dr. Beatrice Santier. We're learning how to protect ourselves. And um, yeah, and and I want to, we'll, we'll definitely want to get into what the different um bacteria and viruses that are, we are finding in Maine. Um, oh, by the, by the way, um, there was, there was something when we were talking about being in the whole, wearing uh, the tick protection in the whole, the whole body, you can get hats as well. Yeah, and that's exactly. like important for, right. because uh, as we discussed with the people who brought the ticks into our home, they didn't tend to fall out of their hair. It was quite dramatic. Yeah. Really? Yeah, that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> well, so and that leads us to the next the next safety measure, which is do a tick check. You know, um, that's it. There's there's good evidence that if you shower within two hours of your outdoor activity, uh, you reduce the likelihood of a tick attachment and transmission of disease. And you know that means rubbing um, with some uh, aggression all areas and and checking all areas. You know the particular hot spots that people will miss, you know, they could attach anywhere. They crawl up, they're looking for a good blood meal. So they're going to go to a blood rich area, but behind the knees and the groin, the belly button, the waist and the bra line armpits uh, behind your ears in the scalp, you really have to carefully look. And I, I have now come to tell people, if you have had a significant area that you were in, if you can't avoid it, and there are some work activities that will not permit you to avoid this, um, don't just check that night. Check again. You know, do the shower. Check again. Um, be aware that you could miss one. Uh, soon, the nymphal tick will be active, and they're about the size of a poppy seed. It would be easy to miss them. Further, the ticks tend they don't necessarily attach immediately. They might crawl around for a little while. You're not going to feel that. These are tiny creatures. So by the time they attach, thus the shower, they're crawling around, get rid of them. Um, but you could have missed one in, you know, under your arm or 
between your toes. Yeah. So just be careful. And you've got to check your animals that spend time time outside too. We have really pretty decent preventive measures for animals at this point, Um, but they can still bring the tick into you. So you got to check everybody. Yeah. So, um, so we know what Lyme, let's, let's get it clear. Some, some people are still confused. Lyme is a bacteria, not a virus. And, right. and then we're hearing um, from the CDC something about a, a different kind of, uh, of um, tick-borne illness. And we, you mentioned some at the beginning, and I definitely want to uh, talk about what those are. But uh, what is that? What's babiosis? And how is that different than Lyme? And how is that different than all of the other things we talked about? Ehrlichia, Rocky Mountain. Yeah. Neomorph- yeah, it, yeah. It's just a smorgasbord of, of uh, really the fun never infection. ends. It, it, it's true. But yes, uh, babesiosis or a babesia infection is caused by um, babesia, which is a, what's called a pyroplasm. It's a parasite. It it is it must live inside of cells. It cannot exist outside of them. And interestingly, they are a red blood cell invader. So kind of like malaria, actually. And the treatment for it is kind of like treatment for malaria as well. So traveling in the same ticks, and we have seen the numbers of Babesia infections rising over time. And the distribution expanding in the state over time. So thus our, you know, the, the maps, the maps we keep of people and ticks and, and animals. Um, the symptoms of Babesia are similar to, but can be a little different from Lyme disease. It would tend to have a higher fever associated with it, um, chills, um, sweats, night sweats. Um, air hunger is, is one of the symptoms I have, um, observed in individuals and, uh, headache seems to be a significant symptom along with, uh, terrible fatigue. If we look in the laboratory, some people will have a reduced red blood cell count. So anemia, um, might also have elevated liver function tests and a low platelet count. So really um, a a terrible infection. Interestingly enough, it has up till its association with the bacteria that causes Lyme, it was widely thought that Babesia was a self-limiting infection. That is, people could have it, not really know about it, your body would take care of it, and it would go away. I So it's not true for all people. You need a, a functioning spleen, for one thing. People who are immune compromised or who don't have a spleen um, are much sicker if they uh, get a Babesia infection. And this is um, my, my conjecture that the association with Lyme, if you get both, uh, you get immune downregulated, and so you are functionally an immune compromised person. What we don't have in the literature or anyplace else is really accurate documentation of what these illnesses look like if they are occurring together. How does that change 
um, the presentation of either one? And how does that change what you're likely to find in the laboratory? I, okay, I'm going to nerd out for just a second. I like looking at blood smears. I mean, I find that to be enjoyable. <laughs> and looking for Babesia on a blood smear is um, previously a gold standard for identifying it. And you can actually see the, um, the little organisms inside of red cells. Um, that is, it's a gold standard, but it was a gold standard developed in people who did not have spleens, who were compromised. And so they were likely to have a higher volume of those organisms in their system. So if you have a 7% volume, you could identify it. If you don't have that high a volume, it can be more challenging to identify it on that slide. There is some testing called fluorescent in situ hybridization that can be helpful because that um, uh, identifies the Babesia species by marking it. And so you're more likely to see it if it's there. And the other thing is um, PCR testing is actually uh, considered one of the gold standards now for Babesia. Um, if you are symptomatic with Babesia, it is in the blood and we can potentially identify it that way. And people are more familiar with what PCR testing is these days. Right. I, this is getting creepier and creepier. Every year, yeah. this conversation is creepier and creepier. So I hope everybody's <laughs> doing okay out there. Now we know about parasites. So now with the red blood cell, does that get confused with leukemia? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, probably not so much. You know, leukemia will affect white blood cells, but as long as you want to talk about white blood cell parasites, let's do that. Um, anaplasma is a white blood cell invader that can... Uh, and again, you can, on a slide, sometimes you can identify it in the white blood cells. Uh, the hallmarks on a blood smear would be a low white blood cell count. Now, the caveat is that in the beginning, it might be elevated, but uh, leukemia will more often tend to be a very high white blood cell okay. count, not a low one. Right. Um, but Along with this low white blood cell count, you can also have low platelets with mm -hmm. anaplasma, mm -hmm. elevated liver functions, mm -hmm. um, big headache, uh, body aches, just terrible muscle aches, and usually a pretty good fever. Uh, so if you suspect anaplasma, I, I, the recommendation is treat. Do not yes. wait for a test to come back positive treat because mm -hmm. this is one that um, can be early on fatal. So, And you, you are treating with uh, doxy if it's at this point, doxycycline. doxycycline. Yeah. Which is an and the nice thing case. is, yeah, the nice thing is doxy will also treat Lyme disease. Right. So it's a, and so if you suspect Lyme disease, it's a very nice agent to use because you are potentially treating more than one thing. And you would, the, what's the three weeks a month? Uh, the I think that the best data in the United States, so we have to clarify because there are different data pools. Um, European Lyme is not necessarily the same as U.S. Lyme. European Lyme, there are three different 
uh, species of Borrelia that are likely active. And the one that's most likely to cause the skin rash is unlikely to spread systemically. However, in, in, the US, Europe, in Europe, in yeah. Europe, yeah, in the wow. U.S., the the uh, the species uh, most responsible for American Lyme disease, U.S. Lyme, Western Hemisphere Lyme, um, is uh, for most responsible for the rash is likely to disseminate. And Borrelia, and so, Borrelia is Lyme disease. We're just, I'm, forgive me. I'm sorry. Yes. No, no, Lyme no. Disease. This is important to know. So we can uh, yeah. be uh, yeah. educated here. So, yeah. so, so if, wow. Three weeks is, uh, I think the best evidence so far and maybe longer than that, because in the early studies that were done, if individuals were not better at the end of three weeks, they immediately retreated. So something like three to six weeks looks like the right window. Um, and those who were retreated recovered. Um, there have been a few studies that uh, unfortunately were not well done, not well controlled, that suggest you can get away with 10 days of doxycycline. But the only study that carefully looked at that found that 10 days was not as good as three weeks. So. And two I, I, that's still what I recommend. And two pills? Uh, the two pill treatment. Yeah, two, the single dose, that's really two pills, one dose, single dose doxycycline is actually not a treatment for Lyme disease, not for the rash of Lyme disease or any other manifestation of Lyme disease. That is um, recommended by... Um, Infectious Disease Society of America as a preventive treatment after tick bite. If you can identify uh, the bite within 72 hours and it appears to be an engorged nymph, I mean, it's really pretty specific recommendation. And I think it's an interesting recommendation. The the study did not last long enough to tell us if it actually prevents Lyme disease. The best thing that they could really say from the study is that that treatment would prevent the development of a rash at the site of a tick bite. However, some people did go on to develop Lyme disease. So I think it's really important for providers and for patients who are seeking care to realize it's never the treatment for Lyme disease. If you have the rash of Lyme disease called erythema migraines, and the common appearance of erythema migraines is a uniformly red expanding rash. It can be a little bluish red. It can have central clearing. But if you're waiting for central clearing, making it that target bullseye appearance, that almost never happens anymore. Uh, I think in the elegant study that um, was done through uh, Maine Medical Center in collaboration with others in the vaccine trials, 9% of patients' rashes had that bullseye appearance. The 59% were uniformly red expanding rashes. So, so if you uh, have the rash, it is Lyme disease. Uh, get treated. Two pills doesn't treat it. 
If you just joined us, this is Healthy Options right here on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're speaking with Dr. Bisha Santir about ticks and tick-borne diseases, and we're getting into great detail about some treatments. Now, um, I want to get back to, I don't want to forget uh, all the other ones that you mentioned. Anaplasmosis, is that a bacteria as well, um, by the way? It's in the category called rickettsia, really. It's one of those little particle obligate intracellular um, parasites. So it has to, so is it a bacteria? That's a really good question, sort of. Okay. Well, <laughs> we don't want we don't have to get into that. No, that, that, we'll, we'll have the uh, the the uh, another show all about all yeah. the intricacies about this. But two yeah. parasites, babiosis, uh, anaplasmosis. We have yeah. the bacteria of the Lyme uh, bacteria, right. and um, we have a close relative um, yes. to the Lyme bacteria, Borrelia myomotoi, which we're tracking now, which is identified now as hard tick relapsing fever. Okay. It looks a lot like Lyme disease when you get it, um, but we'll probably not test positive on any of the Lyme testing. You may have a rash similar to uh, the rash of Lyme disease. Um, And clinically, it kind of looks like Lyme disease. There are some differences. If you PCR test that, if you strongly suspect it, Um, it might be positive. That's actually a good test for it. Um, Looking at the percentage of infected ticks with it, it's less than 2% of ticks that they have been able to study that have been identified carrying it. And there, although there are sometimes some cases in in 22, there were 12 cases um, identified. Now that requires that somebody thought to look and I think these tick panels now make it more likely that we look because they check for more things than we used to. So that's another. But that that is a bacteria. And then and then the Wasson virus. Wait, so. wait, just for a moment. Um, just yeah. for those who may not really remember what a PCR test is, can you just I'm tell sorry. us what that is? And Yeah, PCR is polymerase chain reaction. And what it looks for is the actual DNA, the genetic stuff that identifies uh, any creature as what it is. So it looks for the DNA of the bacterium and um, and is able to identify it, amplify it, and uh, prove that it's there. Okay. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So yes, Powassan is the virus, and we've known in, in Maine that people have died from that very suddenly. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the, the thing about Powassan virus, again, we don't know how common it is in ticks yet, but I, I'm excited that we're going to know that um, more and more over time. But the number of cases that occur are few. It is a a virus that causes neurologic disease and it can make people extremely ill. Um, And as you pointed out, we have had deaths from Powassan virus. What sets it apart for me is the transmission time, the time from tick attachment to transmission of this virus is so much more rapid than for any of the other infections we've talked about. Um, For Lyme disease, for example, although it is often said the tick needs to be attached for 36 hours, in fact, it can be 
transmitted in under 24 hours. But that's still 24 hours, um, even if it was 12 hours. We know that um, anaplasma is definitely able to be transmitted within 24 hours of attachment. Uh, Babesia is probably a little longer time um, than 24, but still, Powassan virus can be transmitted in as little as 15 minutes. Mm. So from my standpoint, although I am, although it's uncommon, it is an uncommon infector, we have no treatment for it. We can only support you through the illness and hope it goes away. But it's, it, it, it just can, it is the reason that I think um, people might really take seriously keeping ticks off of them, you know, because it is serious, it can be devastating, and it's transmitted quickly. So the, the, the key to not getting Powassan is not having ticks on you. Hmm. Okay, Sorry. let that sink in. No, that's what, good. What did, that's good. Let it you? sink in. I want to give good news some year. I do. I want to. I, I don't have any right now. But <laughs> Oh, you know what else uh, we're tracking through CDC um, now uh, as of this year is alpha-gal syndrome. Now, that's a whole nother tick also, at least as far as we now understand it. Uh, it is associated with uh, the lone star tick called amblyoma americanum. And you could, that one is also a small tick either universe, uniformly dark or with a very prominent white spot on its back, thus the lone star kind of look. And um, that's it's kind of an aggressive tick. Uh, we do not believe there to be an established population in Maine, but we have had suggestions of its presence kind of sporadically over time. And I think this past year, uh, there were um, 28 Lone Star ticks uh, looked at by, that's not a big number, you know, they looked over at over 5,600 ticks sent in. 28 of them were Lone Star ticks. 17 of those 28 were from away. Someone brought them home with them. And, and we know the other New England states do have these ticks more more prominently than we do. Certainly, Connecticut is tracking them carefully now. Um, so its range has, is expanding. But 11 of those ticks, there was no travel history associated with. So something for us to be mindful of. Ehrlichia is an infection that is transmitted by uh, those ticks. But this alpha-gal syndrome um, is a red meat allergy. I mean, it's just the oddest thing. And it's related to a, a sugar particle that is um, in mammals that isn't actually in ticks, but it, one can be sensitized to it because of the bite of one of these ticks. And it's, um, it can be challenging to identify and diagnose it uh, because the allergy doesn't happen immediately upon eating some kind of meat, but rather it's a delayed allergic reaction that can be quite severe. There are testings that we can do for it now, and I think the importance of tracking it is, in part at least, making uh, individuals and healthcare providers aware of this 
oddity that we need to be mindful of in people who present with unusual allergic symptoms or in, or sensitivity, sudden sensitivity to meat. Mm. Well, yeah. Yes. What I, and I, um, yeah. So what I wanted to, <laughs> what is Rocky Mountain spotted fever? Oh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever has been um, known for a long time. It is also a rickettsia. So in, in, in the family tree of the anaplasma guys, um, it can be a pretty devastating disease. And that's another one that as soon as you suspect it, you treat it um, because it can be devastating. Um, high fever, fatigue, body aches, a characteristic rash that doesn't show up early enough to make it a good point of identification, but it's, um, it's a very tiny uh, uh, spots of red rash, a petechial rash often. And um, it, it devastating has a relatively high fatality unless it's treated early and carried by uh, wood ticks, um, dog ticks, potentially. Uh, we have no homegrown cases in the state of Maine ever so far, although there have been a couple of cases who people who have come home. So um, clinicians for sure need to be having this on their radar. Um, the treatment is doxycycline hmm. uh, and um, don't wait for testing. If you suspect it, you treat it. Wow. So, so we're looking at all of these uh, high fevers. We're looking at body aches. We know uh, a lot of people with Lyme disease, they have joint issues, yeah. foggy thinking, fatigue. And a lot of these uh, have that. What we haven't spoken about is if, this tick has bypassed all of your best intentions. How do you remove it safely? Oh, oh. well, excellent. Uh, safe removal of the tick is one of the things that has actually been studied. And uh, the probably best method is the be best method is the method that you can do well quickly. But the best method studied is fine nose tweezers grabbing the tick as close to the skin as possible and with steady, gentle pressure, pulling straight out. Um, and the skin might tent and it will feel like it's not coming. Don't give up, just keep going. And it comes out. Um, the other method that has been studied is using a tick scoop. So it's like a notched spoon, a spoon that has a notch in the front of it and getting that notch beneath the tick body against the mouth parts and moving straight across the skin. Again, steady, gentle pressure. Um, clean the bite of the site, bite site, clean your instruments, wash your hands, save the tick in a baggie for identification. Um, some folks, I've seen some stuff online. I, this time of year, stuff always starts to spread and it, it causes me concern. Uh, so one method is a tick unscrewer kind of thing. No. It has not been studied. There are people I know who swear by it as an effective measure. My concern is that it could break the tick in that motion. And when the tick breaks, tick guts and juices can escape into the wound. And you could potentially take 
what was an innocent bite that is not enough time for transmission of infection. And now you've made it a potentially guilty bite. So you just have to be extremely cautious. I'd love to see some data on these screw things. I have not I don't found know. any. Don't annoy the tick is, is no. uh, this is, you know, I learned that from you. We all learned yeah. that from you because it'll, <laughs> you know, don't, it none, don't put a match to it. Don't, you know, right. don't yeah. try oh, to the other... it with your fingers. Don't. Yeah. Why would you oh. turn it? If the, the infection comes out through the, through the, the mouth the parts, mouth, the regurgitation. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. And, and, you know, regurgitation isn't a forever thing, but in an early, the early part of the attachment, this is what we're talking about. Why do we want to take the chance of it? Um, the other thing I've seen online that makes me very nervous is the dish soap on a cotton ball. And it's presented by people who are credible. So it, it worries me, you know, and the thought is you rub the tick with this thing and it will come out and you'll have a tick on your cotton ball and maybe you will. So I have two problems with that. The tick annoyance factor is there. You are annoying tick at that point. But the other part is what if it doesn't? Now you've got a slippery tick that you're going to try and grab with tweezers. You want to use your best method immediately. Um, that's, that's the recommendation. The, yeah, needle nose are the best, right? Yeah, fine, right fine tweezers that you fine can tweezers. grab as close to mm. the mouth parts as possible. Okay. And if the tick breaks, and sometimes it does, and the mouth parts are left behind, um, I, there are two things to talk about with that. A, the tick broke. So now maybe there are tick juices, and maybe this very innocent bite is less innocent. So it might be a bite that you're going to consider treating with antibiotics that you might not have considered treating with antibiotics before it broke. Do you have to worry about the tick mouth parts left in your skin? As far as we can tell, probably not. You know, most of us really want them out. Uh, but there's, they're going to act more like a splinter than like um, a, a rod of infection. So you know how splinters go. They either work themselves out or they don't. Um, I, that's a real personal preference thing. If you can't stand having it there, have someone get it out for you. No, you would want to wash everything, keep everything clean. So, yeah. yeah. And don't wash, wash, your wash, hands. wash. wash your hands. Wash your hands. Yeah. Wash your hands. If yeah. you just joined us, you are tuned to WERU Community Radio. This is the Healthy Options Program. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're discussing ticks and tick-borne illnesses and how to prevent them with our tick expert, Dr. Beatrice Santier. Thank you once again for being here. Um, I have a question about testing. You know, has there been any improvement? What do we know about testing and what, what should we be thinking about? Well, a great question. Testing is... Um... There are a lot of people working on testing. Um, I haven't seen big changes that have been made available uh, for the practicing clinician yet. They're, they're more in development. Um, so uh, the standard testing for Lyme disease has been and still is serology. That is a blood test looking at your body's reaction to um, the infection. It's, um, it has big limitations. Um, if we do it early, 
an infection, it is unlikely to detect antibodies because it takes at least two to possibly six or eight weeks to develop an antibody response if you're going to develop an antibody response. When we test in um, spread disease, so disseminated disease, um, turns out that the testing is better if you have arthritis um, than if you have a neurologic disease. So much more sensitive for arthritis, 97% sensitivity in arthritis, 72% in neurologic disease. So we can miss, you know, a third of patients with neurologic disease if we use the testing as the most important determinant. So it's one data point again. And in late disease or persistent illness, it's very challenging because you can remain ill and the, t and the antibodies can go away, or you can be well and the antibodies can persist. So it's a challenge to interpret. Um, so testing, it, that's largely it. I think there are some labs who um, focus on getting the better tests, use more um, strains of the bacteria. So not just a single strain, but more strains in order to identify it. Um, so that can be helpful, but there are still limitations to antibody testing. Um, we'd love to have direct tests like culture and PCR, but this is not, Lyme disease is not a, um, it's not highly present in the bloodstream all the time. It tends to be an infection in the tissues. So when they have done this DNA testing of skin samples of the rash of Lyme disease, that's more likely to be positive than oh. a blood sample. So it hides. It, 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 it hides. And it, 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 it encapsulates, right? So that, Well, it, it can hide in a lot of different ways, and it can persist in a lot of different ways that have been identified, both that cyst sort of encapsulated form in biofilm form. I mean, there have been studies now that have identified tissues with these um, elements in them. So this isn't just, we wonder if it happens. We don't know for sure, and this is hard, that that is what is causing persisting symptoms. You know, there's a list. If you, if you become ill, if you get, we'll just take the instance in which you have a rash um, identified or not, you progress to later illness. It spreads through the bloodstream. You end up with either an arthritis or some neurologic symptoms. Um, and some people go on to have symptoms that persist beyond six months. That has been, I tend to call it persistent symptoms, but they're, you know, uh, post-treatment Lyme disease is an actual diagnosis. It involves having symptoms that persist beyond six months and functional disability as a result. The folks who established that definition identified 34% of people who have persistent symptoms. Only about 11% of those individuals had functional disability as a result. So we've got a long way to go, but to understand what all is happening. And it turns out that it, that particular entity is more common in women than it is in men, even though there seems to be a predominance of men who, it, it's a small male predominance, but it is 
a male predominance that's been identified. So of what? It's of what? Male predominance of? Of early Lyme disease. Early Lyme. But women, early Lyme. women tend but to. But there's, women tend to have persistent symptoms. Huh. Men are more likely to have Lyme arthritis. Men are more likely to have objective neurologic disease. Women may have the symptoms of these illnesses, but not the, the they are more likely to have aching joints, fatigue, um, uh, neurocognitive memory, um, yeah. and, and thinking yeah. issues. Yeah. Um, so, and it's, you know, it's not huge numbers. We're not talking about a massive difference, but it is different. So interesting. It is interesting to see. Well, the other women, um, erythema migrans, the rash of Lyme disease, was found to tend to be about two centimeters smaller in women, smaller in diameter in women than in men. So if you use a five centimeter cutoff, which we do for reporting of disease, Ah. right? So are we missing some in female patients because it's three centimeters, not five? Ah. You know, theoretically, for clinical purposes, the five centimeter cutoff doesn't count. But some, I won't know, I don't know, some, many people will use five centimeters. If it's not big enough, it isn't line kind of thing. So are we missing cases? We're certainly missing reportable cases. I don't know if we are clinically missing cases. When we do serology, uh, it appears that uh, women tend to have less reactivity and fewer um, fewer reactions on a Western blot. So they are less likely to be positive in serology than, than male uh, sufferers. It, it gets mm. interesting. It's, it's complicated and we can't rely on the tests, in other, in other words. Right. And yeah. One data point. They are just one data point. You have to use the entire history and right. physical exam, all of the data points. Yeah. And a Western blot is a test that does what? Oh, the Western blot um, is also a serology. It's a, it's a reaction to the bacteria measures your body's response by measuring antibodies, which is what we make in response Mm -hmm. to the infection. Mm -hmm. And um, the first stage of the test, the ELISA, measures sort of a a quantitative reaction. So how much inflammation Mm -hmm. is there? The Western blot is more qualitative. Which particular proteins that belong to this bacteria is your body actually making antibody too? Mm. So it, it gives a, a different look at that. And okay, you know, well that's still. that's and it's still not accurate is what we're learning. Yeah. And now, in a lot of ways, it's missing. It's missing uh, right. people. What? Um, so and I've seen that people test negative, but they're totally sick and they're not getting treated. Right. There are other antibiotics and long COVID, long COVID versus long. You know, long line. Uh, wow, yeah. that's complicated. Yeah. But also, there are different antibiotics being used. There are also homeopathic regimes. And I wonder, I, I don't know this, I'm speculating at right now. I wonder if the homeopathic deal with the microfilm differently than the antibiotics. And, you know, this is another good research piece that I would love to, to see when, what works mm-hmm. when. But um, so these long, the long term 
are you seeing other antibiotics being used? And we only have a couple of uh, minutes left, but it's a big yeah. topic to bring up right now, but still. There, well, it is a huge topic and there are, there is work being done. There are people looking um, both in the lab, looking to see if they can find something that will be um, more uh, 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 potent against some of these biofilms and other persister forms as well as against the um, regular, you know, free form of the, of the bacteria. So that is happening in labs and they are identifying things that are needing some evaluation. It's also happening uh, to some extent in, um, in clinical trials. Um, uh, you know, Richard Horowitz is looking at the use of uh, an anti-mycobacterium, um, that mycobacteria are responsible for like tuberculosis so he has some protocols where he is using um, multiple medications to attack the bacteria in different ways and and having some success. So Whoa. very interested to see that's, where that's all going to go. Absolutely. And there are other studies coming oh, out of Columbia. So it's being, we'll, we're trying. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but at least there's something happening and we'll certainly follow up on that with uh, with you and, and, and others. Um, Thank you for joining us. Our guest today on Healthy Options has been Dr. Beatrice Antier. Once again, here you are. Well, you can find links to the show and to other information that was mentioned, as well as our previous interviews with Dr. Santier on the Public Affairs Archives at weru.org. And get the WERU app and you can listen to the show as a podcast. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support, to Petra Hall for production assistance, and as always, thanks to all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.